0: Minimum of four lines for $25 per line per month with auto-pay discount using debit or bank account. $5 more per line without auto-pay, plus taxes and fees. Phone fee at 24 monthly bill credits for all qualified customers. Contact us before canceling accounts to continue bill credits or credit stop and balance on required finance agreement due. $35 per line connection charge applies. Ctmobile.com.
1: KCBS Radio, original podcasts.
2: We discussed in the last episode how Stanford University was inspired by Jane's son's death in 1884. At the age of 15... Leland and Jane had the idea together, and Leland quickly began working to make the dream a reality. He channeled his position and wealth into gaining government roles, first as governor and then as a senator. During this time, Leland used these things to his advantage to pass the Enabling Act and the Grant of Endowment, also called the Funding Grant, that established the university in 1885. These provided the university with its funding, named the trustees, and granted a deed of trust to the university. But these founding documents proved to be, well, not the best laid out in the long run. From KCBS Radio and Odyssey, I'm Natalia Gurevich, and this is Bitter Academia. Episode two, Follow the Money.
0: You know, I'm cynical about this, but everything Leland Stanford did was badly done. (laughs) Um, And I think in this case, he was also being betrayed because Mm -hmm. he takes credit for drawing up the legal documents, but I think he also got help from people who were um, setting traps in those documents. Like
2: the Wilsons? This is Richard White again, the author of the book about Jane's death. We're talking about the Wilson brothers here, Russell and Mountford, who served as both Leland and Jane's lawyers for several years. They'll become even more important in the days leading up to and after Jane's death.
0: It was Wilson's, he had other lawyers too in the Southern Pacific and, and enemies there. But what but what you do is there's a set of laws about how you have to incorporate anything in, in California mm-hmm. and the rules that you go about doing them and what you can do, you can't do. And, and this California charter for um, Stanford University violated virtually all of them. Mm. Um, and then beyond that, he has to give an endowment. So in giving money to it, which is just trickles in at first, there's another set of rules about how endowments are to be managed to make mm-hmm. sure that universities and other corporations are going to be properly managed. They violate all of those. So both of the founding documents are, you know, to put it bluntly, illegal. <laughs> I mean, okay. they're, they're, they're a house of cards, and anybody who wishes to challenge them can do so.
2: Despite it all, somehow... Stanford University manages to open in October 1891. There are 15 faculty members hired, all hired by the school's new president, David Starr Jordan. The 559 students enrolled in the inaugural class make Stanford the largest college in the Far West. But none of the mistakes made by Leland when creating the school would be fixed until after his death in 1893 just two years after the university first opened. He only left the school $2.5 million, as the rest of his fortune was tied up in the railroad. If you think this is hard to follow, it gets worse. After Leland dies, he leaves this mess for Jane to sort out just as the country faces an economic downturn, and Leland's company is not immune.
0: I knew where these fortunes came from. I mean, the best parallel would be um, to somebody like, you know, I'll say Elon Musk, mm. who's immensely wealthy, but virtually all of his wealth is tied up in Tesla in one single company. Mm -hmm. And that wealth goes around stocks. Now, he can borrow off of those stocks. People will loan him money off of the stocks. He can sell the stocks. Mm -hmm. But for Leland Stanford, he had similar um, wealth based on the Southern Pacific Railroad. But the Southern Pacific Railroad, though people didn't always know it, was on the verge of going bankrupt. And he could not take money out of it because he had pooled his money with the other associates. And none of them could pull money out without the permissions of the other ones. So on paper, Leland Stanford, is immensely wealthy. But if anything happens to the Southern Pacific Railroad, and in the 1890s it became clear something terrible was about to happen to the Southern Pacific Railroad, Leland Stanford would lose everything, and so would Jane. Jane apparently did not know how shaky the finances were. Mm. She would find out after Leland's death, and to Jane's credit, I mean, even Collis P. Huntington, who hated her and who hated her <laughs> husband, said that she was um, at least more competent than her husband. Really? Which was a pretty low bar, but still it was it was true.
2: The depression the country falls into lasted from around 1893 to 1897. And if that weren't enough, Jane has to grapple with a lawsuit the United States government filed against the railroad company to return the money they had borrowed a year after Leland dies. The government sues the Stanford estate for $15 million. Until her case is won before the Supreme Court in 1896, Jane has to keep the university running through a government allowance. She had to slash faculty salaries by 10%. At one point, she even sold her own jewelry to keep things going. All of this, Jane had to deal with on her own. And instead of bending and breaking, she fought for her family's legacy and the university. A woman who, up until that point, had little documented involvement in her husband's business affairs, was able, with the help of one trustee, to keep things afloat.
1: Yeah, it sounds like before he dies, her life was definitely very typical. So uh, it it just seems a little odd that suddenly she'd be able to make such a quick pivot into handling all of these things with a shrewdness that is, say, better than her husband's. I I mean, do you think she just had to? Like, did she have people that it doesn't sound like she had very trustworthy people helping
0: her? No, she doesn't. And she learns by being betrayed. Okay. (laughs) Um, After a while, Jade Stanford learns that when this much money is at stake, you cannot really trust anyone. And that becomes, I think, part of her her personality. She Mm -hmm. has lawyers who she will pay a great deal of money to, um, but she begins to realize that they are looking out more for um, her relatives' interests and their interests than they are for her and for Stanford University. She finally does get somebody who she can trust. And that's George Crothers, a trustee. Mm -hmm. But that's really a peculiar story.
2: If you haven't noticed by now, there are a slew of people involved in the Stanford's lives, whether it's business dealings, their personal and social circles, or the university itself. If you're finding it hard to keep track of who's who, don't worry, I'll come back to them. George Crothers is one of these characters. His story is peculiar, as Richard said. Almost everything about this case is. Jane first noticed him when he was a student at the university, and he caught her eye for one reason in particular.
1: Yeah, George Crothers, I'll be honest, when I first started reading the book, he seemed like a pretty good suspect to me, <laughs> just because his story seemed so out of place.
0: Yeah, it's a, it's a story that's hard to believe, because with Jane Stanford, when Jane Stanford establishes her relationship, let me back off and do that. <laughs> Jane Stanford establishes a relationship with George Crothers by stalking him. Quite literally, he is a freshman at Stanford University, and she is struck by how much he resembles her dead son. So she would get in a carriage and follow him around campus. So Um, strange, and and, especially
1: strange to admit.
0: Yeah, it is. Well, she admits it only really in her last trip. In the end, she tells Crothers about that. Mm. And that Crothers later learns that he becomes her lawyer, because, in fact, she trusts them as resembling her dead son. He doesn't know about the stalking. But she also begins to realize, as she gives him papers, that she is being betrayed by other lawyers. That, in fact, Mm -hmm. a series of very bad, dangerous financial decisions are being made. And that the university itself, because the documents are so poorly drawn, perhaps on purpose, um, is not really a university at all. That anybody who wishes to legally challenge it can do so. And Crothers will spend roughly 10 years of his life trying to fix all that, which will involve an amendment to the California state constitution.
1: And I mean, good for him <laughs> for recognizing it, but I'm, I'm just like, what benefit would, say, the Wilsons or, or the others involved helping, what benefit would they get from drawing up such poor documents?
0: Because everybody thought at the time, well, Stanford University could very well fail, which mm. means that all the money that's invested in it is going to be gone. Mm -hmm. A lot of the people in the family wish they were getting the money and it wasn't going to Stanford University. So the ability to challenge the endowment and foundation of Stanford University would open up the Stanford fortune to other heirs. So there's a lot of people who figure if Stanford goes, we are the beneficiaries of it.
1: Okay, so essentially they were putting in these, I don't know, safety nets like for themselves from the very beginning.
0: Yeah. And, and Jane Stanford, initially, because she only becomes competent as time goes on, sets up other ones. Like when she realizes there's trouble with the endowment, that it might be illegal and the my whole thing might actually not go to the university, she literally gives it to one of the trustees. Oh,
1: yeah. That was so weird.
0: <laughs> Everything about the place is weird. I mean, you take your entire endowment and you sign it over to one of the trustees on the grounds that now he controls the endowment and he can give it back if, in fact, the endowment is ruled illegal. I remember until the, the other lawyers <laughs> look at that and think, what what are you doing? This is the 1890s. Corporate corporate law was a right. lot looser Endowments were a lot looser. Mm-hmm. And even the ability of um, people to leave money to universities because Jane Stanford, the money she keeps, she can only leave, I think it's one third of it to the university. Okay. Because people want to try to protect um, other heirs and other beneficiaries. So okay. the law was very different then. And... Um, Whoever was drawing this up was either A, stupid and clueless about the law, or B, wasn't stupid and clueless and realized they were setting up the ability to challenge everything in court.
2: Richard and I are talking about how at one point, during the economic troubles in the lawsuit following Leland's death, Jane signed the university over to one of her trustees. By doing so, she keeps it safe from anything that might happen to her estate in the long run. It's a gamble, one of the many she makes to keep the school safe. Essentially, Jane's life after her husband's death was battled over by a series of men with a vested interest in her fortune and her holdings, and only one or two, like Crothers, might have had good intentions. Even his intentions were not necessarily in Jane's best interests, but that of the university. Another major character in this story, also acts in the best interest of the university, or at least he thinks he does. David Starr Jordan was not the Stanford's first choice to be president of their school, nor the second, nor the third. But the other candidates they approached at more prestigious East Coast universities rejected their offer, despite the promise of a high salary. Jordan was recommended to the Stanfords by the president of Cornell University, Andrew White, who had rejected the job.
0: Because everybody else turned down the job. Uh, yeah. <laughs> I mean, they thought they could have whoever money would buy, and that's that's why I go through a little bit at the beginning. They are literally university president shopping <laughs> and um, they will people will not come. They're not gonna why should they leave an established Eastern University to come out to California, which is thousands of miles away from the East and American intellectual life, to live at to work at a university funded by two two Multimillionaires who don't seem to have a clue about what universities do.
2: Jordan was the youngest university president in the country at Indiana University at age 34. His youth and his attitude made him seem like an acceptable fit for the liberal arts-focused school the Stanfords had envisioned. He was also on board with the school's philosophy of admitting both men and women. So in 1891, he became Stanford's president While he played a pivotal role in the school getting off the ground and helped hire the majority of the faculty, things turned rocky rather quickly. The main issue, his relationship with Jane. Jordan and Jane butted heads on almost every element of the university, the budget, the faculty, even at one point, how much money was being spent on doorstops in one of the buildings. The other issue, Jordan was never meant to be an administrator. Before he became president of Indiana University, he spent his time as a researcher and scientist, specifically in the identification and study of fish.
0: He's a terrible president. Um, and What he becomes is he's an early public intellectual. I mean, one of the things about David Sturt Jordan is he's in love with the sound of his voice, um, and that he will speak on anything. He's an expert on anything. I mean, if he were if he were alive today, he would be a columnist for the New York Times. <laughs> he would just write about whatever came, and he would write with an air of authority, and he did it all the time. And that most of the time, as you go through it, he had no idea what he was talking about. But he loved the public adulation. The thing he liked most about being president of the university was the admiration of students. He liked the ability to be invited places. He used it as ability to do his own research. Um, But as a university president, he was an utter disaster. His credit makes it very clear.
2: One of my other sources for this podcast was a sort of hybrid biography slash memoir written by NPR journalist Lulu Miller about David Starr Jordan. Unfortunately, Lulu did not respond to my attempts to contact her for this podcast. However, the book proved very insightful as to the type of person Jordan was. While Richard casts a harsher lens with his perspective on Jordan, Lulu provided a more nuanced take. In her book, she emphasizes that while Jordan was far from perfect, and in many cases, far worse, he had an innate ability to forge ahead at any sign of conflict or trouble. This is clear in the opening scene of her book, when the 1906 earthquake hits and destroys Jordan's lab, taking hundreds of fish samples with it. Instead of giving up, Jordan begins the painstaking process of pinning labels back on their corresponding fish samples. It's this fortitude, or stubbornness, that makes Jordan perhaps an adequate, maybe even good for the time, scientist, but not necessarily a good university president.
1: I I don't know, I just, I don't understand some of the, obviously, I know that a lot of the decisions with the faculty were based on personal vendettas and, and loyalties and that kind of thing, uh, but I, I guess, was that normal at the time at other universities? It,
0: it had been, but one of the things that people um, object to about Stanford is that teaching at Stanford meant pleasing two people, David Starr Jordan and Jane Stanford, and they say this is no way a university can work. Um, this is not a private company. You don't hire and fire who you want. If you are not going to give people job security, if you're not going to give intellectual freedom, and Jordan begins to realize this, then nobody is going to take you seriously as a university. And it's one of the things that the president of Harvard tells them. He said, if this stuff was happening at another university, people would be far more concerned. But this is such a peculiar place that there's no place else like it that it's you can't set any precedent.
2: There are several scandals and conflicts that rock Stanford in its infancy. We'll get into those more in the next episode. For now, what I will say is that both Jordan and Jane make poor decisions regarding the school in the wake of these scandals. But Jane is the one who is ultimately bankrolling the institution, something that Jordan often seems to forget. By the time 1905 rolls around, it's clear both are fed up. After that first poisoning attempt in San Francisco that winter, Jane is preparing to travel to Japan by way of Hawaii. When she gets back from her trip, she plans to get rid of Jordan once and for all. In fact, she's already set the wheels in motion. But as we all know, she doesn't make it that far. Next time on Bitter Academia, we learn just how sour things have become at the university that was meant to be Jane's love letter to her son and her husband.
0: My further research found out is that Jordan knew that Jane Stanford was going to fire him when she came back from that trip. Um, And Jordan also seems to know that she's not coming back from that trip because he fires um, Julius Goebbels, who is his main enemy on the faculty and is somebody who is supported by Jane Stanford, which would have been a, a rash move if he thought Jane Stanford was coming back.
2: While things at the university were turning bitter, Jane's personal life wasn't faring much better. Her closest relationships and confidants in the years leading up to her death, even they began to chafe under Jane's presence. She was sort of the golden handcuff. She's trapped, right? She's working for this person, this very a demanding employer. She's yeah. getting older. Um, her mother's Needs attention. She might want to actually, you know, find a partner and start a family herself. She's traveling around the world with this rich employer, you know, that she might have felt desperate somehow. Bitter Academia is an Odyssey original podcast, researched, reported, written, and narrated by me, Natalia Gravich. Edited by Myron Kaplan and Matt Pittman. Production, engineering, and sound design by Matt Pittman. Myron Kaplan is Odyssey's managing producer for national podcasts. Please rate, review, and subscribe to Bitter Academia on the Odyssey app or wherever you listen.